In 2017, nearly a third of Americans died at home, making it the most common site of death for the first time in decades. Although the perception that a good death is one that occurs at home is ingrained in our cultural and social history, palliative care clinicians and others have begun to question this notion. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Melissa Wachterman, a palliative care physician and assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Wachterman has co-authored a perspective article about settings for end-of-life care. Dr. Wachterman, you write in your perspective article that where Americans die has shifted over the past 15 years. Can you describe that trend and what might be driving it? So there are a number of different components to why people die at home. And just to say that dying at home is definitely a good option for many patients and families. But I think that the concern on the part of palliative care doctors and others is that this may not always be a completely patient-centered decision, not only about preferences, but also about needs. So I think that there's a number of different pressures. One, and one that we're concerned about, is, is financial and some of the different incentives towards dying at home. So what are those financial factors? In what ways does the healthcare system create incentives that favor home death over death in other settings? So we, in the article, break it down into some of the incentives that different stakeholders have. And so looking first at thinking about hospitals and both hospitals and insurers can save money when healthcare expenses, which we know are very high near the end of life, a lot of which is driven by inpatient death. So money can be saved when people move out of these inpatient settings. You know, hospitals get paid based on the diagnostic risk group where they get a lump sum of money for a patient, regardless of how long they stay in the hospital. So if stays are shorter, then they can save money. And often home is one of the easiest discharge destinations to send patients. Another one that we think about a lot is on the part of hospices. So I want to say that there's a lot of good that comes from hospice, but both in terms of the way that they are paid by Medicare and also some of the incentives that they have can move towards home death. So one I think is really important is that Medicare pays hospices about $200 a day for patients who are cared for in the home setting. Whereas there is another benefit within Medicare called the general inpatient benefit. And for that, that's when a patient is either in a sort of freestanding hospice facility or a skilled nursing facility with hospice. And for that, the payment by hospice is more around $1,000 a day. So there's an incentive for Medicare to not have a huge amount of care done under the general inpatient benefit. And that's seen the amount that only about less than 2% of all hospice care is in these GIP settings. So from a hospice's perspective, when they get the $1,000 a day for the GIP from Medicare, it may seem like a lot of money, but they have to pay for nurses, nursing aides, the facilities, getting $200 a day for a patient to be at home. When patients die at home, the vast majority of that care is delivered by family members and other paid caregivers. So the out-of-pocket costs, both in terms of direct out-of-pocket costs and also unreimbursed caregiver labor really drives a lot of the care 
that happens at the end of life for patients who are dying at home. And that care is essentially financed on the backs of families rather than the healthcare system. So given that, despite the overall focus on home death, you say in your article that as death nears and the realities of dying at home sink in, patients and families can change their minds quite quickly. So how does the reality of home death, in addition to this additional burden of care, but how does the reality of home death sometimes diverge from people's expectations? I think there's a number of different ways. Uh, A piece of it is symptoms and symptoms that can come up at the end of life. And also, I don't want to undervalue the component of the care burden. I I think that is a huge driving force. So I think about as a palliative care doctor and caring for a lot of patients at the end of life, there's a number of needs that increase as death nears. Some of them are symptoms. So symptoms like pain, but also other symptoms like agitation. And that connects then with the increased care needs that patients have. So I think one of the biggest pieces around care needs and family burden is the increasing need for the patient to be moved and repositioned, their inability to do that themselves. And so thinking about things like incontinence and imagining, you know, the 90-year-old woman caring for her 95-year-old husband when there's an episode of incontinence and the ability for her to be able to move him to manage that is a very, very heavy burden and one that unfortunately can't be timed to the home health aid coming from the hospice. Similarly, I think one of the hardest symptoms to manage is sort of agitation and delirium because here you have this family that's facing a really tough situation. A family member is dying and then to have a family member who's not themselves confused, getting agitated, trying to climb out of bed, worried they're going to fall and to be dealing with this in the middle of the night alone is really quite burdensome. And I think that you sometimes can't really picture that until it's actually happening. So besides home, what other settings can people choose for end of life? What are they and what are the potential benefits and drawbacks? The one other setting is a inpatient hospice facility. It can be either a freestanding place or in a long-term care facility, a nursing home where there's a wing dedicated to end-of-life care and patients near the end of life. I think there's a lot of advantages that come with that in terms of moving away from a more medicalized model, but also having those key supports, the nurses to respond quickly to symptoms. A lot of times symptoms at home, the only option is pills. And in the inpatient setting, using the intravenous method, these medications take effect much more quickly. So thinking about things like pain or agitation, those medications can act more quickly. The other advantage in that setting is the ability for there to be nurses' aides and others to help with the daily things that happen, incontinence, patient moving, so that in these settings, patients and families can really focus on quality time together, which becomes all the more important when there isn't a lot of time left. The other piece, I think that dying in the hospital is something that definitely historically has had a really poor reputation. And I think that over the last couple of decades with the rise of palliative care, the kind of picture of what a hospital death looks like has really changed. And dying in the hospital for some people 
is the decision that's most in line with their preferences and also their needs. And with the support of palliative care and nursing, the way that that death looks, it doesn't have to be an invasive, lots of machines kind of death. It can be a peaceful end. Finally, could you describe some of the policy changes that you think would be needed to ensure that end-of-life care is available and is fully supported in a range of settings? What do we need to be doing? So I think about this in two separate categories. The first is to better support home death. And by this, I mean that a lot of costs get transferred to patients and families with the unpaid caregiver labor and out-of-pocket spending that it requires in order to provide high-quality end-of-life care. And so I think that one piece is to increase payment to families. So there's different models for this. So the VA and also some state Medicaid programs provide some paid family caregiving hours. I also think that hospices often are not providing a lot of home health aid support. And I think that thinking about policy ways to ensure that patients and families have access to sufficient home health aid hours is another way of supporting home death. And then the other piece is that we need to reduce the barriers to dying in inpatient settings because for some patients and families, that is the right choice. I think the kind of patients and families that that's the right choice are those that have a high burden of symptoms and a high degree of care needs. So I think the way that we can do that is thinking about payment and reimbursement for general inpatient hospice, potentially increasing reimbursement for that setting of death. Thank you, Dr. Wachterman. 